Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, good morning. Can I just say, um, during that intro video, I was just kind of looking through the room and seeing different people. I love being your pastor. Uh, I just, I just, you know, it's, you, you know, what an amazing group. What, what a privilege, what an honor, uh, what a gift to me to be the pastor of this church. Anyway, so that was not in my notes, and now I'm going to preach long because of it. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Those of you online, I love being your pastor, too. I can't see you, but I'm trusting that you look incredibly smashing this morning. Uh, hey, some of you are aware uh, that one of the hobbies that I have is running, and it's a hobby that I picked up later in life. I was in my mid to late 30s when I actually picked this up as a, a hobby, and and for the last 20-some years, I've kind of, not just running, I've been drawn toward the, the marathon distance, and there's some things I love about that. Uh, I love the challenge. I love the physical challenge because it's long. I, I love the emotional and the, and the mental challenge that happens in some of the difficulties of those races. And I love the accomplishment on the back end after I've done it, and there's, you know, the pain is behind me, and it's pretty amazing. And, uh, and I love that. Uh, several years ago, in 2015, 2016, I had the great privilege of running Comrades Marathon, which is in South Africa. And it's a challenging race in and of itself. That's a different story. But the, the thing before this marathon, before this challenging marathon, there was also an endurance event pre-race that was getting there. Because I had to go from Bellingham, Washington to Durban, South Africa. So you're talking about from North America to Southern Africa. You have two different continents, two different hemispheres, and an Atlantic Ocean between. There's no shortcut to get there. And trying to find the fastest way there, we found that there was a direct flight, nonstop flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg, rather than going through Dubai or anywhere else, that would be the best one. And so we booked our flights on that to get to Atlanta and then take this nonstop flight into Johannesburg. At the time, I don't know about now, but at the time, it was the second longest nonstop commercial flight available. I think there was another one from somewhere to Australia, but it was a very long flight. And that flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg covered 8,425 miles. It was a nonstop flight. Flight time was 15 hours and 20 minutes. That's just the flight time. They start loading those planes for those kind of flights more than an hour in advance, and it takes a long time to disembark. So you're on this metal tube for just about 17 hours. That's long enough to have a night's sleep. They serve several meals. You can watch some movies and read all three of the Lord of the Rings trilogies. It's a long flight, 8,425 miles, 15 hours, and 20 minutes. Let's file that way away for a second. I want to show you a picture of a bird, a bird that I was not aware of until last fall. It's a bird called the bar-tailed godwit. Uh, it's a 10-ounce bird, so a small little bird, weighs less than a can of soda, and, um, and it's 
you know, the, it's hatched in Nome, Alaska. It's a migratory bird. And for really for decades, this bird has caused a lot of uh, questions and, and puzzlement from ornithologists as they've studied the migratory patterns of this bird. And one of the things that they had never done was studied the migratory patterns of the juvenile bar-tailed gotwit until last year. So uh, early in the fall or in, in uh, September, October last year, they, they found a, a young uh, bar-tailed gotwit. He was four months old. This is a picture of him. This is a four-month-old bird. And he's preparing to take his first migratory flight. And they outfitted him with a solar-powered satellite chip that they could track his, his migratory uh, flight. And they put a metal band around his ankle, which you see here, with a, an alphanumeric uh, identification. This one would be referred to as B6. And so they could follow this with the satellites. So on October 13th last year, this little four-month-old, four-month-old, 10-ounce little godwit left the shores of Alaska on his first migratory flight. And they were able to track how far he would fly, how long he would fly, how much he would fly before he would stop. And I want to show you the map of his flight. He flew from Alaska nonstop down to a place called Anson's Bay in northeast Tasmania. 8,425 miles. But he flew nonstop for 11 days and one hour, 750 miles a day without stopping through the night. How do you navigate that? How do you do this without sleeping? How do you do this without eating? This bird and I have something in common. <laughs> we have both known the determination it takes, the endurance, the fortitude, the grit to experience an 8,425 mile flight. Can I just put a little side note? When I read about this, when I heard about this, a four-month-old 10-ounce bird that can make this migratory flight, my mind just praised God for his glorious creation. And if you don't believe in God, that's your deal. That's great. And we're glad you're here. But let me just ask you to think through, how does evolution take a bird four months old and get it to fly that far on a navigational path? You can't just add one more mile a year for 8,000 years. God's glory was amazing in this. And as I read about this world record flight of this four-month, 10-ounce bird over 8,000 miles, I thought of that verse in Hebrews chapter 12 says, so let us run our race with perseverance. That we live our lives with this kind of perseverance. And we're in this series, The Beauty of Becoming. And we're looking at this wonderful transformation that happens in our life. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about this, this transformation, sanctification, as it were. As it says in, in Corinthians, that we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And we're looking at these virtues, the virtues that are lined out throughout Scripture and throughout the ancient uh, church fathers that would teach of this life of virtues, of learning these things. And for our purposes, we've defined virtues as the attitude and the attributes of Christ. And today, as we continue on in this, and when we look at another virtue, today we're going to look at the virtue that we admire in others and we would, we would hope to avoid. We look at others and we see this virtue in their life, 
And it just invokes this wow response. This is amazing. It's beyond impressive. It's beyond inspiring. It's inconceivable. I mean, it's amazing when you see this in people's lives. But we would just as soon not have it. It's the virtue of perseverance. Perseverance. I mean, the very name connotes hardship, difficulties, trials, uh, ongoing uh, issues. I mean, it, perseverance does not paint this picture of 80 degrees and sunny under an umbrella at a beach with a foo-foo drink. I mean, that's not perseverance. And yet, this is one of the virtues that Peter laid out then when we looked in the very first couple of weeks in 2 Peter when he says, and make every effort... Make every effort to add to your faith. And then he gives this list of virtues. Yes, you've been given your salvation by grace. And now add to that. Make every effort. And one of those, he says, is perseverance. Add to your faith this virtue of perseverance. Now, if that was the only place in Scripture that we saw this, we could say, well, yeah, Peter just, I mean, it's Peter after all. You know, he just threw that in. But we're exhorted throughout Scripture and the Bible talks about things like, stand firm, let nothing move you. Yeah, that's perseverance. Endure hardship like a good soldier. That's perseverance. You know, uh, do not grow weary in doing well. Perseverance. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith that we hold. And so you see this over and over again, this, this call for us to persevere in the difficulties of life, in the hardships, in, in the trials, in, in the difficulties. And then there are these verses that take it beyond just enduring to almost celebrating. Verses that when you read them, you're like, wait, what? No, no, you're, you're kidding, right? Seriously? You, I mean, really? For instance, when the half-brother of Jesus, James, writes these words, consider it Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It just leaves you scratching your head saying, what are you talking about? Not just joy in a trial, but pure joy in trials of many kinds. Like a veritable cornucopia, a buffet, a smorgasbord of trial. And we're supposed to count that pure joy? Why on earth would we do that? And he says, let me tell you why. Because you know that the testing of your faith, here it is, develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Say, so, okay, well, that makes sense, but no thanks. <laughs> if that's what it takes to be mature, I'm all about being childlike and childish. I don't want that. Uh, like, are you kidding? Paul would say a similar thing in Romans chapter 5 when he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Paul, Paul, okay, wait, you rejoice in your sufferings? I mean, isn't there like a diagnosis for people like you? Doesn't the American Psychiatric Association have some kind of a, I don't know, some condition, something? You're, I mean, you're twisted. That, that's just, that's, that's wrong. There, there, there's, a, there's, there's a disorder you've got there. He says, let me tell you why we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 4, because we know that suffering, again, produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. That in these hard times, the sufferings and the trials, something can happen within us. And it brings about character. Here's the truth. We don't necessarily like this truth. 
is that nothing exposes or grows our character like hardship. I, I, I get that there was no amens there. <laughs> nothing exposes our character like hardship. I mean, when you go through something, it will, it will squeeze out the real who you are. In fact, I would think if, if you're dating someone, you think this person is wonderful, it's going to be awesome. Make sure that you see them in a very difficult situation, a trying time, because that's when their true colors will really come. It will squeeze out who you really are. And likewise, there is nothing that will cause you to grow more in your character than hardships if, if you'll let God do that. I mean, the truth for many of us, we could say in this room, there are seasons that we've gone through, there are valleys we've experienced, there's hardships, there's trials, there's things that were unjust and unfair that we would never want to go through again. But as we look back, God used that because we allowed him to. God used that to bring about greater growth in our life and that we wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But there are others who've gone through difficult, similar situations and were unwilling to let God transform them and it actually drove them farther away from who he created them to be. One of the books I received at Christmas um, well, that I bought for myself, I told you that story, um, was a book by Dr. Martin Seligman. It's, a, it's a, a, not a new book, but it's called Authentic Happiness. And it's, it's not a faith-based book at all. But in the book, um, uh, he's a, a, a doctor, at, uh, a, a professor, I think, at the University of Pennsylvania. But he was talking about the greatest generation. Some of you are from that generation. Been nicknamed the greatest generation. Most of those people were born during World War I, lived through the Depression, often fought in World War II, and they're referred to as the greatest generation. And he points this out. He says, is it that they have something that the rest of us don't have? No, that's not it. It's that this entire generation was faced with trouble upon trouble upon trouble, and it evoked some deep inner strength within them that made them, this, this, the, the character, the greatest generation. And when you begin to think, if that can happen just by saying, okay, it's going to draw out the best in us, what if we as well say, God, we're going to allow you to transform and develop and to change us in the midst of this as well. When you begin to look at it that way, then maybe you begin to understand why James would say, consider it pure joy. Not because it's fun to go through. Why Paul would say, we rejoice in our suffering. Not because we would choose this, but because we have learned that if we will surrender ourselves to God, if we will submit to him, if we will allow him to, he will use those circumstances to bring about good in our life and we will be stronger and better on the other side of them because of his grace. That's the virtue of perseverance. The one we'd just as soon avoid. So today what I want to do in our time together is I want to look at, at the Apostle Paul. He's what I would say, maybe, maybe, this is, I'm making this up, this isn't part of the Catholic Church, maybe one of the, the patron saints of perseverance. Of course, there's Job, but I thought, you know, let's, let's focus on Paul. And Paul has gone through some very difficult things in life, and he writes these kind of statements. You've probably heard the phrase before, you have to live the blues to sing the blues. What's interesting is Paul lives the blues, but he sings the praise. And I think, well, what is it that he's got? What's his secret? How is he able to be one dead dog away from a country music song and yet still praise the Lord in the midst of it all? 
And we can say, well, you know, maybe he was just had this disposition towards Pollyanna-ish thinking and he just, nothing ever bothered him. Ah, that's not the case. Well, maybe, you know, maybe he, you know, he had a disorder. And, you know, well, that's not really the case either. You might conclude, well, maybe he just didn't have that rough of a life. And he's just writing philosophically. He's writing theoretical. He's writing things he thinks and he believes, but he's just never experienced it. And that's not the case either. Because it makes it, he makes it very clear in his writings how difficult life can be. What's interesting is in his second letter, the second letter we have anyway, to the Corinthian church, it's like this is a running theme throughout that book. You read through 2 Corinthians. He addresses it in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11, and chapter 12. He comes back to it again and again. We're going to look at some of those, not all of those, but we're going to look at some of those. And he just lets them know. And I think part of why he lets them know what he's going through, there's different reasons we'll see. But part of it is to help them understand if you're going through hardships, if you're going through trials, if you've been mistreated, if there's some kind of persecution, if there's some difficulty in your life, that's not unusual and it's not necessarily God's punishment. I mean, he would write to them about their ministry in 2 Corinthians 6 and say, in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses in beatings, imprisonments and riots and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. He's saying, this is how we have labored for the things of the gospel. And he's not looking for pity. He's not saying, oh, woe is us. What he's saying, you know why we do this? You know why we endure this? It's because we love you and we want you to engage in this great life with Jesus Christ. And no doubt there had been some, some people who were trying to defame his image and his character and his integrity. And there had been people who had been talking about him that, yeah, you know, Paul, while he was away, you know, he, he says a lot of things, but he's not really a valid apostle. And so he defends himself. In fact, he kind of says, I- I'm crazy for even doing this, but, and I'm, but let me just tell you about what I've gone through for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 11, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. On top of that, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. He says, listen, I I get it. I'm tempted too. There's times when I don't think I can do this anymore. You've seen what I've gone through. And he just does this list. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But the soggy bottom boys sing, you know, I'm a man of constant sorrows. <laughs> Heedless list is off. I am a man of constant sorrows. I have lived the blues, but I sing the praise. So what is it? What is it that he had? What is it that we can learn from him so that when we go through our trials, when we go through our difficulties, when we go through our hard times, that we can continue on? And I want us to look at, this isn't a formula It's just some observations, uh, many of them coming out of 2 Corinthians, observations of his life, of some truths that he held on to and that held him through those difficult times. And here's the beautiful thing, is that they're available to every single one of us. They're applicable to us no matter what we're going through. 
The first one is not one that we love to hear about, but the first one is that Paul possessed an accurate theology of suffering. Some of you right now are saying this was the wrong week to come back to church. Hang with me. Don't sign off just yet. He had an accurate theology of suffering. Because let me tell you what happens very often in the church is that we have an inaccurate theology of suffering. This is the line of reasoning that we go upon. We hear about this grace of God. We hear about this life that he offers. We hear that Jesus brings eternal life, abundant life, a life of blessings and joy. And all of that is true. But in our mind, we, says, well, we say, well, then that must mean I will never have a difficulty again. I will never have a hardship. I will never have a bad diagnosis from a doctor. I will never lose someone. I will never have a financial setback. I'll never have a relational falling out. I'll never have any difficulty. And that's not the case. So what happens, we go into this with mentality of now I've got this abundant life of blessing and then some rogue wind hits us, some thing happens and immediately we start saying, well, what gives? I thought God said this and this isn't working. And for some, and probably all of us know some, for some, there are people who've walked away from the faith because they said, I didn't think it was gonna be like that. I thought that when I gave my life to Jesus, it would be easier, that there wouldn't be any more problems. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. There's a gentleman that I wouldn't call him my friend. He's become an acquaintance. Um, we don't hang out. We, we've spent time together three times. We do have each other's phone numbers. We do text rarely. His name is David Kinneman. We had him in here uh, for some pastors in the area uh, last year. He's the president and CEO of the Barna Group. And over the last uh, four or five years, um, he's a young man, he's in his 40s. To me, that's very, very young. Um, his wife, his three kids, lived in California. You know, he, he takes over the Barna group, everything's going great. And then his wife was diagnosed with brain cancer. And in pastor circles and, and some beyond that, it, it, was, it was communicated and we had been praying for years. And she finally died. And he watched his wife deteriorate and pass away in her 30s. And then he's raising these three teenage kids. Very difficult. Well, a couple weeks ago, we were at a conference and, and he was there and we, we were talking, but he was on a panel. And in the midst of this panel, he, he made this statement because it, to me, it was, it was profound because my guess was that many of the people in the room were not aware of what he had lived through. But he made this statement just kind of in passing. He says, it seems to me that the inevitability, suffering is the inevitability of the human experience. And then he just went on. Not realizing, many people not realizing, he watched his young wife die of brain cancer and these children that were suffering and trying to be there for them and their pain and all their suffering. But he didn't lose his faith. A lot of questions. A lot of things he doesn't understand. But what he does understand is that while God is good, life can be very, very difficult. I mean, look throughout the pages of Scripture of these men and women who walked faithfully with God and yet experienced great suffering. Jesus himself would say in John 16, in this world, you will have troubles. 
He goes on to say, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But in this world, you will have troubles. And Paul understood that. In fact, when he writes to this church in Corinth, he makes it really clear. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be, mis, uh, to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We want you to know not only what we've gone through, but that this is normal in life. It's going to happen. We were under great pressure. Look at this. Far beyond our ability to endure. Can I just push pause here and say this idea that God will never give you more than you can handle cannot be found in Scripture. Give me the verse where it says that. Paul says he gave us more than we could handle. What we were going through, it was beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. He says, listen, it's reality. He would go on in chapter 4. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but we're not in despair. We're, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around the death, in our, the death of Christ in our bodies. He says, listen, he's not a fatalist. He's not a pessimist. He's not a victim. He just says, here's the reality of life on this planet. There are hardships. Now, now for some of you are going, again, Oh, I can't believe I came to church. I should have gone to a different church today. <laughs> Hang on. It gets better. He had an accurate theology of suffering, and we need to as well. But the second thing he had was a supportive community. As he was going through these times, he never went through them alone. Notice how many times he says, we experienced this. We had this. We endured this. He was never doing this by himself. It was Paul and Barnabas. It was Paul and Silas. It was Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. It was Paul and all these, the, the, the people around him. And can I just say this? That is why, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we offer and encourage for you to get involved in a community, whether it's a small group or a quad or a serving team. Listen, this isn't to kind of bolster our numbers. It's because we want you to have people around you so that when you go through difficult times, there are people there to walk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you, to hold up your arms, to strengthen you. You say, well, I'm doing good. Well, then we want you in a group like that because someone else is going through a time right now and they need you to walk alongside them and pray for them and encourage them and hold up their arms and strengthen them as well. We were never intended to do this life thing alone. Right. So you know that, that Bartel Godwit that I started off with? That's a freak of nature. That is not a good model for us. A better model for us is geese. You're a goose. And you all know this, that when geese fly together in formation, they fly 70% farther than they would fly by themselves. Because they're there to encourage each other, to help each other and strengthen each other. There's a now very famous commencement spe speech. This is going to bring out my inner Pastor Kip right now. 
by um, Admiral William McRaven. Uh, he's a U.S. Special Forces commander. He gave a commencement speech in 2014. It's all over the internet. It's a great one. It's only 19 minutes long. It's worth your, worth, worth your watch. But he's given this commencement speech to the graduating class at the University of Texas in Austin. And he talks about the 10 things, the life lessons he learned in the military. And one of them, about 15 minutes in, it must be number seven or eight, I can't remember, but he talks about what he learned in his, uh, in his training to become a Navy SEAL. Uh, this, whatever, nine-week training that goes on, or in the ninth week of this training, is what's considered, uh, Bud's, is considered hell week. Uh, these six days where it's just like sleepless and nonstop physical and emotional abuse to try to get you to, to, to break into, into to cave. And there's one day in that where they take them to the mudflats. And the mudflats is a swampy area south of San Diego and north of Tijuana where they would take them. And in this mudflats, they would have to endure for 15 hours of just bone-chilling mud and wind and horrible situation. And this is what he writes about the situation there. He says, as the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads, completely sunk in the mud. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Just five men and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth, the shivering moans of the trainees was so loud it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three. And before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. And our singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. It's not that misery loves company. Misery needs company. Company to support. Company to encourage. Company to sing together, to say, we'll wake this together. The, the, the sun will rise. There will be a new day. When I heard that speech, when I, uh, that, that piece of it, I was thinking again about Paul, our patron saint of perseverance. He and Silas are in Philippi doing the work of the kingdom of God, releasing this woman. They're falsely accused. They're arrested. They're flogged. I mean, beaten to what, to what is completely illegal today as they're severely flogged. And then they're thrown in prison, not only in prison, but in the inner cell, which is not just a security thing. That was the worst cell. That's where all the refuse from all the other cells flowed down into this inner cell. And there their feet were put in stocks. And that, again, wasn't just to keep them from walking away. That was to bring about the greatest amount of discomfort. And here they are, injustice that's been done to them, the physical abuse that's been done to them, the circumstances that are worse than anything else. And yet in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. 
they weren't alone. They began to sing. And my guess, as it says, the other prisoners were listening to them, it encouraged them as well. That Paul goes through these things again and again and again with the supportive community. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read these words, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So Paul, he had an accurate theology of suffering. He had a supportive community. The third thing is that he had a sympathetic savior. That he knew that no matter what he went through, that Jesus saw it, Jesus understood, and Jesus was with him. In fact, Jesus had modeled this. There is no one that has ever had a closer relationship with God than Jesus. There's no one who's never had sin in their life except Jesus. And yet in Isaiah 53, it's prophesied that he would be referred to as a man of sorrows. So if closeness to God and lack of sin guarantees a trouble-free, problem-free, pain-free life, then what do you do with Jesus, the man of sorrows? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I love that phrase. I, I've, I've preached that on Easter. What I don't often preach is the second half of the sentence. I want to know Christ, yes, and the power of his resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that can raise us from the death of whatever circumstance we're in. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he says, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I'm not as eager for that one. The fellowship of walking along with my Savior in the suffering, in the hardship, in the, in the in the difficulty times. It says in 1 Peter, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus says, I suffered too. I know what that's about. In fact, I suffered for you. And I will walk with you. follow me. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right. To approach the throne of grace, the high priest who gets it, who's promised he will never leave us, that he will walk with us through those valleys. He will give us the grace to see us through. His grace is sufficient. I love the lyrics of that old hymn. God is not promised, skies always blue, flower strewn pathways all our life through. He is not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But he has promised strength for the day, yeah. rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for all trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. 
we have a Savior who understands, a Savior who walks with us. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, so let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorn, and shame. Consider him, him, Jesus, who endured such hardship at the hands of sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose hope. We have a sympathetic Savior. And the fourth thing that Paul held to was the eternal glory. What he knew is that no matter how bad it was, how difficult the situation, how rough life was, that if he didn't give up, if he hung in there, if he persevered, that there was an eternal glory for him, it would all be worth it. He would write this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. Stand firm. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit too early. It is not in vain. In this life, there will be fruit that's produced in your life. There will be the advancement of the kingdom. There will be encouragement of others. It will be worth it. And in the next life, there's an even greater glory. So stand firm. Let nothing move you. Two weeks ago this morning, I was in Austin, Texas. I, I'd mentioned this. I was running the Austin Marathon with my daughter, Alyssa. And it's really fun running with her. Our pace is about the same these days. And so it was great. And uh, we were running this race. And toward the end of the race, I mean, a marathon, let me just tell you, there are two races, the first 20 miles and the last six. And the first 20, if you've done your training, the first 20 are pretty easy. The last six are not. That's when the real race begins. And so in that last six miles, there were some miles where I was obviously doing better than she was. And there were some miles when she was obviously doing better than I was. And about mile 23, she was doing better than I was. I was not doing well. And she could tell. If you saw a picture of me at that mile, you could tell. I was not doing well. And she looked over at me, and to encourage me, she said, Dad, just think. Three more miles, and then chocolate milk. <laughs> now... If you don't know, there is sign. This is, I'm not making this up. There is scientific proof that the best recovery drink after a long run is chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk. I only drink it after long training runs or after marathons. Absolutely love chocolate milk. And she knew that that would help me out. She knew that that would see me through. We've got three more miles to go. I'm dying. I want to quit. And she looks over and says, chocolate milk. She could have said a whole bunch of things. She could have said, Dad, three more miles, and we will have a memory to take to the grave of what we did together. Three more miles, and we will get a picture of us coming across the finish line with our hands raised in victory. Three more miles, and we'll get a long sleeve finisher shirt that we can wear to show everybody. Three more miles, and we'll get a medal that, only on this one, that doubles as a belt buckle. It's Texas. <laughs> but she says, three more miles and there's chocolate milk. That kept me going. Three more miles, one foot in front of the other. We came across that finish line, arms raised in victory, picture of us, memories to last a lifetime, long sleeve t-shirt, metal that becomes a belt buckle. Walked over into the finisher's area. There was no chocolate milk. <laughs> I would ask that you all write the governor of Texas was just wrong. I had been longing for that. We stopped on the way home anyway, regardless of that. 
Paul is running this race and he knows there's something at the finish line and it's not chocolate milk. He knows. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary afflictions. I read for you what he considered light and momentary afflictions. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says, it will be worth it. On the other side of this, we'll be so glad that we didn't quit. We'll be so glad that we didn't throw in the towel. Right. We're so glad that we persevered. So he gets to the end of his very difficult life and he writes to young Timothy these words. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Mm -hmm. To come across that final finish line, and the Lord himself says here, well done, good and faithful servant. Life is hard. Don't go it alone. Jesus walks with us. Right. It will all be worth it. So he writes to the churches in Galatia, he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Continue on. In Revelation, I'll wrap up with this. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the churches of Asia Minor. And he says to the church in Ephesus, he commends these churches, and then he points out areas where they need to grow. But to the church in Ephesus, he says this, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you've not grown weary. That Jesus would say that about us collectively. Cornwall Church, it's not always been easy, but you've persevered. You've endured hardship for my name, and you've not grown weary. As I know, some of you come in here today and these are some hard miles in life. It's a difficult season. And there's some pain. You're struggling. Some of you weren't even sure if you should come today. But I believe God brought you here. And one of the things I long for in our church is that we can be real and we can be honest and we can be a community where we support one another. And we've done this before. But if today you just need some prayer, some support. I don't want this to be awkward. I want to pray for you, and I want some brothers and sisters to just put an arm on your shoulder, symbolic of we're with you. And if you need some extra prayer today, would you just stand up? We won't ask you what the issue is. We don't want to embarrass you. We won't have to say anything. Just, would you just stand up? And those of you online, if you want that, would you just hit that request prayer button right now? And if there's no one that's in that state today, well, then great. All right, in the back, here, this couple here. These ladies here, Jim, 
Thank you. Here's what I'm going to ask. You see these folks standing? In the back, there's some more, some over here. Would some of you just get up and put a hand on their shoulder? Even if you have to leave your chair. You get some here in the back, some back here, some over here. I don't want anyone standing alone here. Some more in the back there. Okay, thanks. And can we together as the body of Christ do what Scripture says? That the strong would bear up with the failings of the weak? That we weep with those who weep? We spur one another on towards good. We encourage one another. Can we just pray for this? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your grace. And you've made it really clear that while you are altogether good and you give us life that is blessed, it's not always easy. And God, you know what each of these individuals are going through, what they're facing, their struggle, their hardship, the pain, the uncertainty, the brokenness. And we thank you that not only do you know it, but you walk with them. I pray that they would sense that they are surrounded by a community of brothers and sisters who have walked through difficult times as well, who will pray for them and support them. And God, that they would stand firm and let nothing move them to hold to you to know that it will be worth it that there will be a new day there will be a dawning joy comes in the morning glorious a reward at the finish so God may your grace surround them your strength empower them your spirit touch them bring healing bring reconciliation bring wholeness bring hope and life. Pray this all for their sake and for your glory. In the great name of Jesus Christ.